Today is June 4th, 2023, and this uh, is a Dharma talk. I hope there'll be time for questions and answers, which can be provided by some of the noble characters who are in this room, other than myself. Um, this, the, I'm going to be talking from the chapter of a book uh, which is called Happiness is an Inside Job. And um, it's really about the Brahma Viharas. In, in Zen, we don't really study much of the sutras or go into the teachings in great depth because we're looking really towards uncovering the fundamental, which is beyond words, uh, to the, the great silence, the unknown, the yes. So, but the Brahmaviharas were part of uh, the Buddha's teaching, and actually, you could say it's kind of Buddhist psychology. And they can be really useful for us in how we manifest ourselves in daily life. It's not just, our lives are not about coming here and sitting just. It's about what do we, what do we show up with? How do we show up? And so many of us have trauma in our background and it's, one could give a whole talk about how to deal with trauma because it comes up for people in in a session and in sittings but we're going to go for the um, a little more of how we may approach our daily lives so there are four Brahma Viharas and they are compassion loving-kindness sympathetic empathetic joy and equanimity and although we talk a lot about compassion in Zen as being, it's kind of the word we use instead of love, although love is really, it's the fundamental of the universe. There's no question about that. But we don't talk much about love, and we talk a lot about compassion. But if you, the two chants we just did, um, the Heart Sutra, and the Kanzion, those are the, the two wings of the bird. If you just have karuna, just have compassion, you're gonna you're gonna not stay afloat. You're not going to you're not going to have that wisdom to fly. So the other branch is wisdom. Form here is only emptiness, emptiness only form. So rather than focusing on the Brahma Vihara of compassion will work with, through this particular uh, happiness is an inside job, will work on equanimity, upeka. And I'm using uh, Happiness is an Inside Job by Sylvia Borstein. She's a psychologist and a leading teacher at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and also a co-founder of Spirit Rock Center out in California. Uh, 
Her teacher was Deepa Ma, a Burmese um, Buddhist woman known as the kind of the teacher of lay people. And um, one of the things that she said is, what's in your mind? Well, most of the time, she was asked what was in, Deepa Ma was asked, what's in your mind? And she said, what's in, in my mind? Well, most of the time, there's nothing there except peace and equanimity and loving kindness. When the mind is at ease, it preserves equanimity. When there's equanimity, it preserves peace of mind, and the loving kindness is its expression. So now we'll go to the actual text. Brahma Viharas is the Buddhist name for the set of four emotional states that includes equanimity and its direct derivatives, impartial goodwill, spontaneous compassion, and genuine appreciation. A Vihara in Pali, the language in which the oldest Buddhist scriptures are written, is a dwelling place, and Brahma is the word associated with divinity. Classic texts translate the term as divine abodes, and name the four basic ones, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. I love the term divine abodes, and I think of these four states as wonderful conditions of human consciousness in which the mind can rest, feeling at ease, as if at home. You could also say these are heart qualities, uh, these four heart qualities. Equanimity, it seems to me, is the ground out of which the other three flavors of benevolent mind arise. Everything depends on it. Equanimity is the capacity of the mind to hold a clear view of whatever is happening, both externally and internally, as well as the ability of the mind to accommodate passion without losing its balance. The capacity of the mind to hold a clear view of whatever is happening, both externally and internally. Mostly when we're in interactions with, with each other, we see what we want to see. We don't necessarily see what is. We don't see what is actually really happening. We have stories, um, things that come up for us, and we don't see things clearly, things as they are. And when we don't see things as they really are, we believe things that are quite untrue. And the ability of the mind to accommodate passion without losing its balance. And that's something we get from sitting. You know, the uh, anger uh, may come up. You'll feel it in your body. Most of these emotions are experiences, sensations. They come up and you get that little tiny gap where you can witness awareness and you can, you, can, um, you can let the anger just flow away. You could say equanimity really is, is awareness. I mean, this is our fundamental true mind, is awareness. It's, it's um, you could say, witnessing awareness because when you're really truly aware, there is no sense of yourself being aware, you're just right there, 
um, and you're a witnessing awareness. It's the mind <clears throat> that sees clearly, that meets experience with cordial intent. Because it remains steady and thus unconfused, it's able to correctly assess the situations, assess the situations it meets. If there's enough equanimity in the mind to fend off confusion, wisdom can prevail. This correct assessment <coughs> brings with it what the texts call clear comprehension of purpose, the sure knowledge of what response is required and what is possible. Clear comprehension creates a response, sometimes in action, sometimes just in thought. And because we are humans and have empathy built into our brain structure, when we are touched by what we encounter and when our minds are balanced, we respond with benevolence, with friendliness or compassion or appreciation. It's a beautiful truth about the potential of human beings. Here is how it works. I'll explain it using Buddhist psychology and I'll include examples of how this works in my life. As you hear this, see if these century-old postulates about the natural responses of the mind are true for you as well. There are three possible valences of emotional response to every experience, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Here you might think for a moment about how many times in a day or even in an hour you think, oh good, oh great, or oh phooey. <laughs> and even, oh a boring day, not much happening, my life's, you know, not much good, blah blah. The Buddha taught that these different flavors of experience are normal, just the facts of life, and that they aren't by themselves problematic. They do, however, have the potential to create unhappiness if they're not recognized and acknowledged. They create thoughts then that carry an imperative for change. I need more of this. I must get rid of that. I can't stand this. The imperative agitates the mind into confusion. And of course, as we go off into a narrative, whatever it is, we get stuck. And I think we all have that experience of somebody's done us a harm and we carry it. Oh, we don't just carry it for half an hour or um, an hour or two hours or no, no, we go to bed with it, we dream about it, we get up in the morning and we're still annoyed and then we say to us, oh, no, 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 no problem, I'll forget about that. And then up it comes again. So we stick, stick, stick to these negative mind states. If on the other hand, there's enough equanimity in the mind to fend off confusion, which is that's making a choice, really. You know, it's, um, do you go there? I think practice helps us to not go there, you know, to turn away when maybe earlier we might have gone there, we decide, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I remember when my granddaughter, I, she loved to play school, and um, I would, got really into it and <laughs> started turning the pages and giving her more and more. And then I got to a math thing. She was only three. And she, she said, she looked at it and she said, Grandma, we're not doing that. And I said, no, we're not doing that. 
And I think we all, those who are blessed with grandchildren, know that the truth comes clearly out of small people. And it often comes out, the truth often comes out in anger, you know, when we're really pissed off about something. We can actually say things that, um, yeah, that are true for us at that moment. If, on the other hand, there's enough equanimity to fend off confusion, wisdom can prevail. Then the mind can respond to ordinary situations with goodwill, to frightening situations with compassion, and to pleasant situations with relaxed appreciation. There are three examples that come from my living in France several months each year and traveling back and forth between San Francisco and Paris frequently. The first is about ordinary goodwill friendliness, what is that, which is what the Pali word metta means. Perhaps I understate it by calling it ordinary friendliness. It's closer to intentional, omnipresent, devout friendliness based on the awareness that everyone, including oneself, because life is complicated and bodies and minds are often uncomfortable, needs to be working hard all the time just to keep things okay. Here's an example. The overnight flight from San Francisco to Paris takes more than 10 hours, and in the time between midnight and morning, the hours seem longer, and the space between the seats and the coach section seems shorter. When I get up to stretch, and perhaps walk down an aisle, I see men and women, old and young, large and small, all unknown to me, some traveling with small children, all trying to figure out how to be comfortable. I see them wrapped up in airplane blankets, scrunched up into whatever position of repose they can organize, leaning on each other if they're traveling together, or trying not to lean on each other if they aren't. Often a man or a woman is patrolling the aisle from me, holding an infant against his or her chest, and moving in the rocking gait that often soothes a baby's distress. I feel a pleasant intimacy with them. I too am trying to stay comfortable. I'm not frightened for them or for me because I'm relaxed about flying and I assume we will land successfully, but I wish them well. The moment of easy, impartial, benevolent connection, meta, buoys up my mind. I feel better as I sit down back on my seat. Compassion is a variation of metta. It's different from relaxed friendliness because it's hard for the mind to stay relaxed and friendly when it encounters a painful, unpleasant situation. In fact, it's normal and often helpful for human beings to startle at the awareness of distress. The startle is an instinctive response, a, single to, a signal to the mind, uh-oh, something is wrong and you might need to do something. Yeah, in terms of what actually happens in the brain, is there's a release of cortisol when we're in danger, and that's part of our more primitive brain. And at that point, the thinking brain shuts down because there's to be no interference with me getting out of here immediately. And what if I need to do that? That's all that needs to happen. And so my thinking mind shuts down, which is why people will panic because they can't actually rationally think things through. And this cortisol has an enormous effect on our lives, uh, which is a subject for another, another talk some other time. But we do startle at, at, at fear, we get afraid. 
And sometimes when the startle is strong enough to frighten the mind into confusion, there's a period of unease as the mind tries to cope. It contrasts when the mind is able to stay steady, it moves immediately to act in thought or indeed in consolation. Traditional Buddhist texts say the heart quivers in response. And this is where we see people acting in un unbelievable ways to save a life or to jump into a, a moving stream to, to rescue somebody who's, um, who's obviously drowning or in trouble. Uh, this is our heart quivering in response. This is the compassion, the uh, moving, moving us to action. Because compassion without action is not compassion. And the other side of compassion, the near enemy of it, would be pity. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I'm sorry you, sorry you've lost your whatever. Um, but hey, I'm busy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'd like to help you, but next time maybe. In fact, we could all think of an occasion when we've done that. Maybe in the past week even. Has there been a time when you or I have turned away. We felt it. We were moved. Too busy. Too much risk. Too frightening. That's why compassion can be, it asks more of us. It asks for action. That's the third you know, Samantha Bahadra, the third uh, bodhisattva, stepping down. That's, that's what we're called to do. And our lives, when we do that, are uh, enriched and uh, we become the one of which we are. She goes on. A man died suddenly in the middle of a flight. I was on from Paris to San Francisco. I didn't see it happen, but I knew something was wrong because the plane icon on the TV map on the screen in the back of the seat in front of mine reversed direction. Soon after that, while the people around me were showing one another the map and discussing what might be happening, the pilot announced that there had been a medical emergency and requested that any medical personnel come forward to assist. My husband Seymour responded as he had on previous flights when there was a call for a physician and was gone for an hour. The flight continued as if nothing were awry. Flight attendants served lunch, people watched movies, the icon on the TV turned westward again, and I assumed, correctly I later learned, that the person had died and that landing for emergency medical care wasn't necessary. I wondered who the person had been, whether he or she had been traveling alone, how his or her family would learn the news. I thought about how my family would feel if it were I or Seymour who had died. I thought, I hope I don't die in a plane. But then I realized that at the center of my startled mind was the awareness that I can't choose when or where I'll die. No one can.
Seymour told me later that as the flight personnel carried the dead man's body down the length of the plane to the front galley where they made the requisite CPR attempts, people turned themselves in their seats and averted their eyes to avoid seeing what was happening. I'm imagining many of those people were thinking, as I was, that could be me. I knew I was too unnerved to read or watch a movie and I did not want lunch. I sat quietly and after some minutes I heard my mind on its own begin to recite wishes of consolation. May the dead person's consciousness wherever it is now be at ease. May that person's family on this plane or wherever they are be strengthened in their loss. May the memory of this person be a blessing to them. May all the people on this plane who've been frightened feel at ease. May we land safely. Those of you who remember Cynthia Seafeld, um, wonderful spirit, Cynthia used to, whenever an ambulance went past, she would start reciting the Kanon Sutra. I've often thought of it, you know, comes to me too, you know, you, and that's because of that example that Cynthia gave, you know. I am aware of painful feelings in me as a result of what is happening to you or to me, and even though I know that everything passes, now is a suffering time. I hope we all have the strength to endure what is happening without creating extra turmoil. I thought, this plane is like a small city, 300 people, lots of new babies, lots of old people, all ages of people in between, people eating, people sleeping, people working, people dreaming, and one person who just died. It's like regular life. I felt sad for the family of the dead person, but I felt Seymour come back to his seat. He'd spent some time talking with the wife and daughter of the man who died. His death hadn't been a surprise to them. He'd been very ill. Still, it was a shock. They seemed to appreciate, he told me, having someone to talk to. We noticed that members of the flight crew took turns sitting with them for the rest of the flight, talking. It might be part of standard airline training, but I think it is, anyway, the instinctive response of human beings to pain. The heart quivers in response. And here's another story, an example of how the mind surprisingly needs equanimity when it meets pleasant situations. It seems as if pleasant situations should leave the mind unruffled. Not true. If an experience inspires yearning, when a moment before yearning did not exist. On the last day of a winter month spent in France, Seymour and I drove to Los Angeles. Les Angles, excuse me a ski resort two hours from where we live. We had enjoyed seeing the snow on the peaks of the Pyrenees from our deck, but this was the first time up close. <clears throat> the resort was full of Christmas holiday skiers. I was feeling particularly glamorous in my new high-heeled fake fur-lined boots and purple tweed cap and scarf that my friend Tony had knitted for me. I thought about all the years Seymour and I had skied and all the trails we'd raced each other down before we stopped skiing 10 years previously. 
We could ski again, I said. This is an easy hill. Next year, let's ski. No, we can't. It's not worth the risk. We're old. We could break something. <laughs> Look, though, this is so easy. It would be just such fun to put on the skis again. We'd choose a sunny day like today. Forget it. It would be ridiculous. Your back isn't so good. You have bursitis in your shoulder. Last year, you pinched a nerve in your neck. Let's go have lunch on the deck. We'll watch the skiing from there. I caught a glimpse of myself reflected in a window as we walked to the restaurant. I looked shorter and plumper, definitely less glamorous than I had imagined. <laughs> we ordered lunch. I felt my mind mired in nostalgia, dragging itself along, seeming to arrive at the table after I did. I thought momentarily of sulking, pretending to be peeved at what I had perceived as a peremptory dismissal. How often do we get peeved, you know? Amazing. I realized, though, that what I was peeved about was being old. And then I noticed two women sitting at the table next to ours, not unlike me in size and age, carefully made up, quaffed, wearing brightly colored, warm, non-ski jackets and big, beautiful earrings. They were eating hearty lunches, talking and laughing as they ate. I thought they looked marvelous. I looked down at my boots and was glad about the high heels. Later on, before we left, I took some great photos of what I guessed was a three-year-old girl in a pink snowsuit, balanced on her skis with the tips crossed, trying to get her pole straps over her wrist. She looked marvelous, too. The mind wobbles when it discovers it can't have something it wants, and then, when it catches itself, it appreciates. This wobble was a small one, easily overcome. Other yearnings are much more powerful. The cycles, though, of, oh, a pleasant thing, I want it. Oh, I can't have it. I feel sad. I want to be more powerful. I want more. I want more of a role. I, I need this. I don't have enough money. I don't look very good. This is the way it is. It can't be other now or the same regardless of whether the yearning is trivial or tremendous. In the end, relief comes in two stages. The first is the moment that the mind stops struggling and says, I wanted something different, but this is what I have. The second is the ability to rejoice with other people, delighting in their pleasure. May you two beautiful women enjoy this lunch and many others. May you lovely little girl who reminds me of my own children and grandchildren grow up to enjoy skiing and also your whole life. This is Mudita sympathetic joy. And there is one final piece of Buddhist theory that I can add now that I've told the stories of what seem to me to be the natural goodwill responses of the mind balanced by wisdom, the responses of friendliness, compassion, and appreciation that I felt in these three situations depended on my mind being relaxed and alert enough to notice both what was happening around me and what was happening as my internal response. In each case, even though the situation included challenge, my mind had enough equanimity in it to allow me to stay connected with affection. My refuge was my own good nature available for expression. And it might have been otherwise if my mind in the long flight had been preoccupied with stories of my life, past or anticipated, 
or it had been agitated by fears about flying, or even if I had simply been too tired to pay attention to the scene around me, I would have missed it. I would not have been able to recognize the fundamental truth about human beings, that we do our best to keep ourselves comfortable in orderly ways so as not to disturb others in whatever situations we find ourselves. And I would have missed the opportunity to be touched by human courage Instead of feeling warmly connected to the other people on my flight, I would have been indifferent. On the outside, I would have looked the same. On the inside, I would not have felt nearly as good. And the near enemy, of course, of equanimity is indifference. I see it myself, you know. The ants that crawl across my counter. I could carefully catch them, take them outside. But I'm in a hurry, so I get my washcloth, make my dishcloth, and I wipe them off. We all have that. Indifference to another suffering, indifference to so many things. Just think for a moment how you might have been indifferent. Small or large, it's the same. When we recognize it, it's very painful. It causes suffering. And perhaps if I'd been less happy than I was on the day at Les Angles, I would have fallen prey to my envy or jealousy and to avoid recognizing those feelings. I might have started a quarrel about being spoken to peremptorily. As it turned out, I had enough wisdom available to me to think, things change, that was then, now is now. There are other pleasures I can enjoy. Everyone takes turns being able to do this or that in life. We can for a while, and then we can't. May everyone, including me, enjoy this moment. I think that's a profound thing, that things change. You know, we try to accelerate uh, everything to, to get a solution to things, but um, time solves so many things, letting it be, just waiting, being patient, staying in that equanimity, not rushing, not trying to fix everything. Because the opposite of equanimity is actually anxiety, it's restlessness. And most of us have a great degree of anxiety, I mean that's what makes us quite functional to be truthful, but um, if you think of it, that way. Indifference, equanimity, anxiety, restlessness. Indifference, pity, envy, and jealousy are what the Buddha called near enemies of the Brahma Viharas. Indifference, for example, might masquerade as equanimity, looking very balanced and even 
but representing, in fact, the very opposite of emotional connection. Think of the expression, I couldn't care less, which I've always heard as having a sad ring to it. Pity looks a little like compassion because it acknowledges suffering, but is still an arm's length awareness of the pain and carries some aversion in it and some superiority too. Oh, I really pity her. I pity him. It's too bad this is happening to you. The mind thinks without remembering this or some other painful thing will sometime happen to me or my kin. May all beings always be comforted in their suffering. And without balancing awareness in the mind, delight and affection morph into envy and jealousy when other people's joys are joys we covet or when we require something in return for our friendship. All of the near enemies are unhappy, tense states. The Brahma-Viharas all establish connections that nourish and enliven the moment. The near enemies create distance and isolation. We could say it's separation from the fundamental, the fundamental which is awareness. Staying alertly connected to the world outside myself keeps me from falling into the limitations of self-absorption from which no reality check into wisdom is possible. And the reconnection with my own benevolent nature, each time it happens, protects me from the despair of feeling that nothing I or anyone else could do to make a difference. And here's one more detail from the traditional accounts of the Buddha's enlightenment experience that because the Buddha sounds so human in it is particularly inspiring. He is reported to have hesitated before starting out to teach, thinking of the enormity of the task before him. Some legends say that heavenly messengers appeared to him, urging him on, reminding him of the benefits about ending, world su about ending suffering. The Buddha's decision to teach was presumably the result of hearing these heavenly messengers. I know that in situations where I am hesitating about doing something, something I know will be helpful, my own kindness pushes me to it. I anticipate how bad I feel. I feel if I don't act, I think it was the same for the Buddha. And that really is all that we have to say at this point. So I'll close with an aspiration. Um, a Sangha member made me aware of Plotinus. So this is a nice little <coughs> quote from Plotinus. Withdraw into yourself and look. And if you do not find yourself beautiful as yet, do as the creator of a statue that is to be made beautiful. The sculptor cuts away here, smooths there, makes this line lighter, this other purer, until the sculptor shows a beautiful face upon the statue. We are whole and complete. 
and lacking nothing. And I'll open it to any questions people have. Yeah, I was really um, struck by your, by the teaching there that compassion requires action, and otherwise it's pity. I'd never heard it stated quite that way before, and it's it's um, it's a powerful teaching, but also feels like a very difficult one because, of course, if we responded to everything that needs a response, <laughs> um, so I just wondered how you how you balance that, you know, that not being overwhelmed. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good question. I think that's part of what seeing what is has to do with this. When you really see the situation, you you will know whether you whether skillful action would would be good or no action would be good too. You're right. I mean, we cannot get take responsibility for every terrible thing in the world, and that's where people can get really yeah. drawn in. And it's actually um, it's not really the teaching. Yeah. Maybe someone else wants to answer that question. How do you deal with pity, you know, with non-action? Or how much action do you take? You know, it's always, it's always dependent on the situation. It's really, I, I liked what she said about how often the solution is anchoring yourself in what's really going on. Having that awareness and not getting lost in story or your reactivity or your little cortisol adventure. Oh, there's a deeply enlightened woman, Byron Katie. Many of you maybe know of her already. She's not a Buddhist, but uh, she's really open and and, and free. And uh, she, her, one of her teaching um, methods is to have you ask when you're really faced with a problem to say, is it true? And I often find myself, you know, when I'm hearing my dialogue going on in my head, I'll say, is this true? And the sad thing is, in her method, you can only say yes or no. So I'll, you always want to have shades of gray. Oh, well, you know what? It could be this way. Or could be. No, you can only have yes or no. And it's really a very clarifying Thing. Because if it's if it's no, it's not true. Then why are you believing it? You know, and it takes away our love of story, our love of comforting ourselves with, you know, oh, I'm suffering so much and so forth. So, there are. You know, I'm not sure that really answers your question. Anything else? Just for the folks that are here on Zoom, um, it's all set up. So. If you need to, if you want to say anything, uh, you can just go ahead and unmute yourselves or raise your hand, either one, and unmute yourselves and, and speak. Ask your question or make your comment. And you can hear us and uh, those of you in person? Yep, you can. So yeah, go ahead. I think these are really aspirations, you know. They're, I mean, we talk a lot about in practice about it, and it's inward looking, and there's a lot of self criticism and judgment that goes on. And having this um, understanding these four heart qualities 
and then seeing what the near enemies are, you know, for seeing that our jealousy is the other end of, you know, of loving kindness or of, it's, it's can be really helpful. And because we don't really do a lot of sutra study, of course in Korea and in Japan, I mean in China, sutra study is very much a part of the training programs. Um, I think we might benefit sometimes from understanding a little more about our, you know, this, the, uh, of what the Buddha actually said, but there we go. So? Uh, yeah, at the risk of giving a secular answer <laughs> in this very holy place. Um, I, I like our Mathes when he's talking about, you know, when, when we're confronted with trauma and, uh, and our parasympathetic uh, nervous system is triggered, you know, your amygdala is going and all of that. He breaks it down in, uh, there is the event, right? There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, then there is our interpretation of it. And then the third part is our reaction. Uh, and what I found helpful is, is zeroing in that uh, interpretation part. You know, uh, uh, am, am I crazy in, in, seeing, in seeing what I'm seeing or responding what I'm responding? Uh, by the, I mean, if I'm on the horse, that horse is going, you know. Uh, so usually what I do is um, I pause myself, walk out of it, whatever, because it's sometimes you hear a sad story and you want to help and yeah, I'll get the baseball bat and I'll go with you and we'll, we'll get justice out of this. And then you realize like, oh my God, I mean, that's the story. It's not even mine. Um, so yeah, to get to that wisdom. For me, pausing is, is really important. Otherwise, I'm, <coughs> I'm running with the horses. Yeah, thank you. I could make a comment. It's just, <coughs> you know, the Zen practice traditionally, as you said, doesn't talk a lot about the Brahmaparas or many of the other, you know, psychological teachings of the Buddha. They're extremely valuable. Um, and I think more nowadays there's a little <coughs> integration of the two. And what can happen is, you know, you learn on the mat to be present, to notice what's going on, to notice what's happening uh, in your own mind, to notice when you're buying into a story and <coughs> just noticing when you're feeling bad. You can feel miserable and not even know it because you're so transported by whatever story you're telling yourself. Do you learn to do that? And then it's really confirming to have some understanding of the states that you were talking about, Errol. And, and it's just, it's like, oh, okay. You know, I actually enjoy the fact that you're succeeding. Or it, it feels good to know that you just won the lottery. And uh, you realize, okay, things have shifted for me I'm not always looking to protect myself and get what I need. I can appreciate that I'm just embedded with everybody else. And you realize what a healthy way that is to grow. You're not just trying to put on a face of, oh, I'm a compassionate person, I'm a benevolent person, I'm a, you know, I'm, I help people. You're just, it's, it's coming out of your, your own deeper mind. And you realize, OK, 
okay, I'm in a stream that's going in the right direction, I'm gonna keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, Luca. Um, Errol, could you speak a little more about discerning the distinction between um, skillful inaction and indifference? <laughs> where is he? Gerardo, where are you? Here. Speak up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, good question. Uh, in action, uh, we usually stay in action because we're caught up in thoughts and justifications and things and Action can be uh, damaging for oneself, or maybe because we get caught in our own story of what we believe happens to us, and we we start putting tags on, oh, this is this, this is that, and then that, and we just confirm our own belief system. Uh, we, we confirm that they, that's how the world is. Don't see it as it really is. We see it through our own descriptions. And so the great problem of an action, not not acting, is is that this tendency of our minds to then justify whatever feelings come up or uh, things that happen to us, and then we can blame others very easily. Uh, so. It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. So the best thing is just to be able to have full awareness of what we're doing. And, uh, not blame others. Not blame ourselves. Just, just simply be there. No, I, I think you, you're absolutely on it. Um, you know, awareness, that's being. We're here to be, not to do. And being means, it, yeah, be present, you know? What is that? Animals have it. Awareness. Cultivate it, you know? Just be, just feel it. You know, a lot of this is stuff we need to experience in the it's all about experience it's in the body it's not somewhere up here i mean uh, herado sensei uh, roshi talked about you know thoughting thoughts are what really are the enemy of equanimity you know and we're doing it all the time and you can't stop it i mean that's what your brain does to keep you surviving and to help you out and but beneath that if you come back to awareness then there you are right wayman You're right, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Every performer needs an audience. <laughs> okay. So, Wayman's favorite, favorite phrase is, awareness is Buddhahood. It's not a phrase to him. It's, it's the truth. It's what Bodhidharma said. 
awareness is, you know, it's, it is our true nature. So, yes, Jerry, we only have time for, we have one minute and 10 seconds before people need coffee. Uh, I really understand the difference because I'm, this is, you know, coming to our senses. Something's going on in me emotionally that says pause, don't. And it gives me the time, do I take action or, and sometimes action is no action, don't do anything. Yeah. Let it, you know, let it roll, as it were. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing I often get confused is, you know, I know love is in compassion. And for me, this is just a personal definition. Love kind of is about myself and the other, but compassion is much broader. It's a selfless love that expands out. But I, I think that's how I would define compassion. It's, it has nothing to do with me. And if I can have that selflessness, which we don't have yet, no, you do. Uh, then, then we, then we, I don't know. We just become more effective in, in, yeah. in the way. That's all. Thank you, Jerry. That goes back to the fundamental that we are all one. You know that we're not separate. We see it as, I mean, we are separate, but we're really not. So that goes also into fundamental truth. But I think it's probably coffee time. Are there, thank you, Jerry. Any more? Last minute. The bus is leaving, and we will recite the four vows.